1: with Dr. Frank Turek. A number of years ago, I was at the University of Maryland, one of the many universities, it's easy for me to say, universities I've had the privilege at which to speak over the years. And we were done with the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist presentation. A number of atheists hung out after the presentation was over and we were just talking. And one of the young men there was saying some pretty negative things about the New Testament. And he was saying things that really weren't true about the New Testament. So I finally said, have you ever read the New Testament? And he was flummoxed. He froze. The answer was he had never read it. And I said, look, I don't care where you're from. I don't care what your background was or how you were brought up. Jesus of Nazareth is inarguably the most influential human being to ever walk the earth. If you're going to call yourself a seeker of truth, you have to at least read what he allegedly said and did. You yeah, I mean, you may read it and think it's not true. You may read it and call it bunk. But you got to at least read what the most influential human being to ever walk the earth supposedly said and did. Otherwise, don't call yourself a seeker of truth. Why would you call yourself an atheist if you've never investigated the person around whom the world's largest religion is centered? Why would you do that? And how did this One Solitary Life become the most influential human being in the history of the world. In fact, there was a sermon about 100 years ago called The One Solitary Life. It's a very short little sermon. I'm going to read it to you. We actually have it in the book, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Here's what this sermon actually said, speaking of Jesus of Nazareth. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant. He grew up in another village where he worked as, where he worked in a carpenter shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never lived in a big city. He never traveled 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. While he was dying, the executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth at the time. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. 20 centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. I am well within the mark when I say that all the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man on this earth as much as that one solitary life. Unquote. If there was no resurrection, how could this life be the most influential life of all time? How could that be, ladies and gentlemen? Think about it. Think about all Jesus of Nazareth accomplished since 1987 years ago when he was brutally executed how could that one life be the most influential life of all time? Maybe because he actually rose from the dead and that's what we celebrate this weekend. But could he have risen from the dead? I mean, really? What evidence do we have for that? How can you believe such a thing? But well, what I'd like to do here today is to talk about some of the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. There's a lot of it. I can't get through it all in one sitting. We have books written on this. Many people have written books on this, not just me, obviously. There's a lot of evidence that Jesus rose from the dead. In fact, you may know that every day through this coronavirus season, when we're locked down, we're live at 1130 a.m. on our Facebook page, Pages cross dot DR Frank Turek and also on our YouTube channel, the cross examined YouTube channel and our website. And even now on Twitter, we're streaming a one hour live show called Hope One. We're trying to bring hope to people. We've done 10 shows because we've been on for two weeks. Just this fat past week, we've had Dr. Dan Eikenberger on. He was on Monday. He's our medical doctor that gives us updates on the coronavirus situation. Tuesday, we had the great Dr. John Lennox. You can watch that show. All these shows are archived on our YouTube channel, on our Facebook pages. We've had Dr. Mike Lacona on, talking about the resurrection on Wednesday. And then on Thursday, I talked about the four things to do in a crisis. These are the four things the Apostle Paul did in a crisis – Watch Wednesday's show. I'm not going to, sorry, Thursday's show. Four things to do in a crisis. I'm not going to repeat myself here. You can just watch it. Paul did four things in a crisis, and we ought to do the same thing. And then just Friday, good Friday, we had the great Jack Hibbs, Pastor Jack Hibbs on from the from Calvary Chapel, Chino Hills. Amazing guy. Great church. Just spoke out there a few weeks ago. And uh, Jack, we talked a lot about the passion. We talked a lot about Jesus, we talked a lot about salvation and sanctification and took a lot of questions. In fact, we took questions every every one of these programs. So avail yourselves of those shows. Coming up this coming week, on Monday, we're going to have Brian Crane, who is the uh, COO of the Orange County Rescue Mission. What can you do to help the people who need food and clothing right now and the homeless? On Tuesday, we we plan to have uh, Dr. Stephen Meyer on to talk about viruses. What are they? Are they intelligently designed? Wednesday, Charlie Kirk from Turning Point USA is scheduled to be on. If you haven't heard of Turning Point USA, amazing on-campus ministry. And then uh, we've got some other shows coming up after that. But check out Hope One because we're doing the show live every day. I hope it's actually bringing hope. Now, one thing before we get into the evidence I got to say about this coronavirus situation It struck me just this week. Do you realize that we know more about the morality of the coronavirus than we do about the science of the coronavirus? Do you realize that? What do I mean by the morality? We know with certainty that it's wrong to allow a virus to indiscriminately kill people if we can prevent it, because we know people are valuable. They're made in the likeness and image of God, and we want to protect them. Almost everybody agrees with that. We know. know No. What this virus is and what its transmission rate is and what its death rate is and how it's transmitted. We know more about the morality than the science of it. Think about that. In fact, you know more about the morality, about your own behavior, than you know about scientific issues. You know you need a savior more than anyone. I do too. But why do we have these different models out there? that started out saying there'd be 2.5 million people dead if we did nothing. And even the models that said, if we really locked down the country, we could lose up to 250,000 people. Now the models are saying we might lose only 60,000 or maybe even less. Why? Because we don't have the data. We know more about morality than we do about science in many instances. In fact, you couldn't know much about science unless you had a moral code. Like part of the moral code is, Report your results accurately when you're doing science. That's part of morality. And if I had more time, I'll do this in a future program. I'd like to point out to you that in order to even do science, you need certain metaphysical principles that can't be proven by science. In addition to morality, you need cause and effect, you need the laws of nature, you need uniformity. You need so many other things. Your senses can understand the truth about the real world. Those are all metaphysical claims and philosophical claims rather than they are scientific results. Anyway, when we come back, we'll talk about the evidence for the resurrection. Did it really occur? Because if it did, it's our ultimate hope. If it didn't occur, there is no hope. I'm Frank Turek. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. We're back in two minutes. Ladies and gentlemen, can you help me with something? Can you help me get this podcast before more people? Not only tell your friends about it, but go up to iTunes and put a five-star review on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast. If you do that, it will help us move the podcast up the charts so more people will hear it. Thank you so much for partnering with me on this. Did Jesus of Nazareth The most influential human being to ever walk the earth, who never traveled more than 200 miles from his home, who never wrote a book, who never led a business, who never went to college, who never led an army or led people politically. Did that person, Jesus of Nazareth, really rise from the dead? That's the question. Well, in order to answer the question, we have to figure out, is it really true that God exists? Because there can't be a resurrection unless God exists, because a resurrection is something that overpowers the laws of nature. And if there's nothing beyond the laws of nature, then how can you say Jesus could have resurrected from the dead? And a lot of people will philosophically rule out a resurrection because they say miracles don't occur. Now, as you know, as we've covered many times in this program, and we cover quite a bit on college campuses and high school campuses and in churches, there's very good evidence that God exists. In fact, one primary piece of evidence that God exists is that the universe exploded into being out of nothing, that once there was no space matter or time, and then the entire space-time continuum leapt into existence out of nothing. This has even led atheist scientists to admit the universe had a beginning. Stephen Hawking famously said, almost everyone now believes that the universe and time itself had a beginning at the big bang Unquote. Well, if the universe had a beginning, then whatever created the universe must be beyond the universe. If space, time and matter had a beginning out of nothing, whatever created space, time and matter seems to by logic would have to be something spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful to create the universe out of nothing personal in order to choose to create because impersonal forces can't create, can't choose anything. They, they just do the same thing over and over again. The being would also have to be intelligent. You get this from the fact that space, time and matter had a beginning. So whatever created space, time and matter must transcend it must be spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent at the very least. Now this doesn't necessarily prove the Christian God, but it seems to disprove Atheism. There must be a, a mind, a being out there, a spaceless, timeless, immaterial, powerful, personal, intelligent being out there that chose to create the universe. In other words, Genesis 1-1 appears to be true. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If Genesis 1-1 is true, then resurrections are possible. In fact, if Genesis 1-1 is true, every other verse in the, in the Bible is possible. You just can't rule it out. Because you say, well, miracles don't occur. Well, the greatest miracle, the beginning of the universe out of nothing has already occurred. So lesser miracles inside the universe are certainly possible. If God can create the universe out of nothing, he can certainly resurrect Jesus from the dead. First piece of evidence. We have a theistic universe and there are other arguments, you know, for God. That's not the only one, but let's just stop there. This is a theistic universe and miracles are at least possible. You just can't philosophically ruled, rule them out. Secondly, love exists. How is that an argument for the resurrection? Well, it's, it's, it's not an argument directly for the resurrection, but it's an argument that says there's a being that created us that loves us. And if he knows that we're in trouble in the sense that we're sinners and we need someone to take our punishment, he might come and save us. And everyone knows love exists. Well, what is the ground of love? That's God's nature. If God is a loving being, you would expect he would come at some point to rescue us. And he does. We should expect God to somehow rescue us. And according to the scriptures, according to Genesis three five three fifteen, 15, I should say, as soon as the crime occurred, the redemption plan was put into place. The first prophecy is Genesis three fifteen, that God's going to send a deliverer to crush the head of Satan. It starts there. The rest of the Bible is the story of that redemption plan. In fact, if you had to sum up the Bible in one word, it'd be the word redemption. You have paradise lost in Genesis, paradise regained in Revelation. Everything in between is the story of redemption. And God, because he loves us, sets that plan into place. You also have Old Testament prophecy. that points to a Messiah who would be a suffering servant. Who would die and pay for our iniquities. Isaiah chapter 53. We've been through that many times before. You could also look at Daniel 9. If you do the math on Daniel 9, by the way, you find out that the Messiah would come and be cut off in 33 AD. We covered that in the book. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. You've got that the Messiah would be born and he'd be called eternity. He would be born in Bethlehem. According to Micah 5, 2. By the way, there are two Bethlehems in, uh, in Israel. you know there's one in the north and one in the south it It actually names the right Bethlehem too. It's the one in the south down near Jerusalem. You've got Old Testament prophecy that talks about this, and Jesus is the only one that fits these Old Testament prophecies. By the way, this uh, Messiah would come from the line of David jeremiah twenty three born of a virgin. He was born of a virgin, actually. And by the way, born of a virgin, why is that important? Well, it's just another miracle. No, it also seems to indicate that the born of the virgin, the reason Jesus is born of a virgin is not just for a miracle. It's so Jesus doesn't have a sin nature. Apparently, the sin nature is transmitted by the man. Sorry, guys, we're we're the carriers. But a woman impregnated by the Holy Spirit would give birth to a baby that didn't have a sin nature. He's... Innocent, doesn't have the sin of Adam, doesn't have a sin nature. Jesus didn't, but he was hundred percent human. So you got old Testament prophecy. Also, you've got early testimony. The new Testament documents are written very early and the data from which some of the new Testament documents are taken or are informed or these, this data informs the new Testament documents are extremely early for example, if you go to 1 Corinthians 15 the earliest evidence for the resurrection anywhere in the Bible if you go there you're going to read that there was a creed in or there is a creed in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses three to 8. I don't have time to read it right now but the Creed tells who Jesus, Appeared to, that he was buried, that he rose again, that he appeared to so many people. That creed, even atheists agree, goes all the way back to the event itself. Bart Ehrman, the famous atheist, says this is within one or two years of, this, of the alleged resurrection of the crucifixion. So we're talking in the early 30s A.D. or 35 at the latest. Yes, Paul wrote that in First Corinthians, which he wrote in about 55 A.D., But it comes from an oral tradition, a creed that was in a rhythmic form so people could memorize it easily. It comes from near right near the event itself. So the documents are early and some of the sources for the documents are extremely early like this creed. Gary Habermas, as you know, the top scholar in the world in the resurrection, wrote a book a number of years ago called Historical Jesus in which he identified at least 41 creeds that are found in the new Testament. This is probably the most famous one. 1 Corinthians 15 verses three to eight. This isn't the, 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 these aren't stories made up. They're not even made up decades later. They're not made up at all, but they don't even come decades later because the creed in particular is quite early. And the earliest documents in the new Testament are probably written in the forties A.D., Some, some have even suggested the late thirties, but it's early regardless because you have very early testimony. This is not legendary stuff. Two generations later, this is stuff that comes very, very early. In fact, Colin Hammer, the great Roman historian makes a great case. We repeat, and I don't have enough faith to be an atheist that all most, if not all the new Testament documents are written prior to 70 AD. Actually his case was that acts was written by 62 And if Acts is written by 62, Luke is before then. And then all the dominoes fall after that. Dr. Geiser and I said, it seems to us that most, if not all, the New Testament documents are written prior to 70 AD. So this is all in the lifetime of the eyewitnesses while they're they're still around. So you've got Genesis 1-1 being true. This is a theistic universe. You've got the fact that love exists. We all know love exists. The source of love is going to come rescue us. we have got Old Testament prophecy We've got early testimony. We also have eyewitness details that only an eyewitness would know. This is throughout the New Testament documents, but here's just a few examples. The second half of the book of Acts has 84 eyewitness details in it or eyewitness Historically probable details. Colin Hammer, the guy I just mentioned, the Roman historian, wrote a a book on this called Acts in the Setting of Hellenistic History, in which he went through the entire book of Acts and like with a fine tooth comb and picked out all the places that that Luke talks about and all the things he says. And he finds on 84 occasions, they're all telling what appear to be something that only an eyewitness would know. Or someone who knew an eyewitness, Paul, I mean, Luke is. An eyewitness to some of this stuff, or he knows eyewitnesses, and he's a meticulous historian. In the Gospel of John, as Dr. Craig Blomberg has found, there are 59 historical probab- uh, h- historical details, or eyewitness details, or historically probable eyewitness details. These things are something only an eyewitness would know. At the crucifixion, by the way, you know, it talks about Jesus having after the spear goes in his side blood and water comes out and john who reports this probably thought it was miraculous but actually that's what you would see in a crucified victim in the uh, the sac around the heart the pericardium there would be a watery fluid and if you were to puncture that with a spear blood and what appeared to be water would come out now how would he know this if he wasn't a medical doctor how would he know this unless he saw it, or somebody saw it and told him about it? This seems to be an eyewitness detail. You said maybe he saw somebody else getting crucified. Well, still, even if he did, I mean, it's an eyewitness detail. I mean, you, yeah, you, you could say what, about, you could say, you could say almost anything. But to explain this, except the most reasonable thing was was that he saw it. That's the most reasonable thing. Yeah, maybe somebody else saw somebody else get crucified and said this was. Yeah, but. There's too many ad hoc ways of explaining something when in fact, if you look at all the details, it seems like these people were eyewitnesses in, in many other respects as well. This is one out of 59 just in the gospel of John. There's 84 in, in acts. There are several other eyewitness details scattered throughout the new Testament that have been proven to be eyewitness details, or at least to a great prob a great degree of probability. If that's the case, these people are really eyewitnesses. They're not making this up. And why would they make it up? They're Jews. We'll get to that a little bit later. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turk. Did Jesus of Nazareth really rise from the dead? That's what the Easter weekend's all about. Is it really true? I don't have enough faith to believe it wasn't. More on that after the break. Don't go anywhere.
0: If you find value in the content of this podcast don't forget to follow us on instagram facebook and twitter join our online community to have great conversations growing your knowledge of god and become a better defender of the christian faith also Don't forget to subscribe to our YouTube channel, where we have hundreds of videos and over 100,000 subscribers that are part of our online family. Find us by searching for Frank Turek or Cross-Examined in the search bar. You can find many more resources like articles, online courses, free downloadable materials, event calendars, and more at CrossExamined.org.
1: Our website, crossexamined.org, where you will find a live stream every day at 1130 a.m. Eastern time, on the weekday anyway. Hope you can join us for Hope One. And there's several other resources up there. There are online courses you can take. There's scores of videos, actually hundreds of videos on our YouTube channel. They're also on our Facebook page. If you're just sitting around and you got nothing else to do, even if you got something else to do, hopefully they're edifying and helpful. Check out those uh, videos, check out the blog, check out what we have there on the website, on the online courses, uh, and uh, join us every day if you can for the Hope One Show. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek. On this Easter weekend, this resurrection weekend, before we uh, left, we were talking about some eyewitness details and uh There are so many that uh, we list, and I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. You can get that to go further. Uh, Let's talk also about embarrassing stories. This is another reason to think that the New Testament writers aren't making this up. They're not making the resurrection up because there's embarrassing stories that actually make them look bad. For example, Peter, their leader, is called Satan by Jesus. Do you think they made this up? Do you think Mark, who wrote that down, said to Peter at one point, hey, Pete, I'm going to make this a real interesting story. I'm going to have the Lord call you Satan. (laughs) Have him call you Satan. I wouldn't, I wouldn't, Peter, if I'm Peter, I'm not allowing him to to do that. That's embarrassing. That makes me look bad. And, and also their leader, Peter says, Lord, I'll never deny you. What does he wind up doing? He winds, he winds up denying him three times. That's embarrassing. And then at the crucifixion, what happens? All of the disciples, maybe with the exception of one, they all run away. This is like a Monty Python movie. Run away. They all run away. And who are the brave ones, ladies? Yes, the women. The women are the brave ones. Now, who wrote the New Testament down? Men. Now, what man is going to make up that he was hiding for fear of the Jews Why the women went down and discovered the empty tomb? Would any man you know make that up? No way. I mean, if I was there and I wanted to make it up. I'd make myself look good. I'd write something down like, we marched right down to the to that Roman tomb, and we saw those Roman guards, and we overpowered them. Peter said, get out. John said, we'll be back. And then on Sunday morning, we marched right down to the tomb, and we saw Jesus who congratulated us on our great faith. And then we went and comforted the trembling women. I would never say... I was Mr. Sissy pants while the women went down, and discovered the empty tomb. But that's what the new Testament documents essentially say. This is embarrassing. They're not making it up. And I can't believe this next verse is in the new Testament, but it is. Well, before I get there, the other thing, when <laughs> you think about this. It's embarrassing to have the men, uh, not be the first witnesses and have the women be the first witnesses. That's embarrassing right there that the the men run away and the women are the first witnesses, but for a completely non-related reason, it's also embarrassing to say the women were the witnesses at all. Why? Because a woman's testimony was not considered on par with that of a man. So if you're making up the new Testament story, you'd only have the men be the first witnesses yet. All four gospels say the women were the first witnesses. Why? Because they really were They had no motive to make this up. They had every motive to say it wasn't true. Not every motive to say it was. I actually had a woman come up to me once and she said, Frank, I know why the, I know why Jesus appeared to the women first. I said, why? And she said, because he wanted to get the story out. I said, that is an excellent point. I hadn't thought of this. I mean, (laughs) you know, think about it. Ladies, when your man comes home from work, does he say much? There could have been a nuclear explosion down at the plant. He's not going to tell you. You'll see it on the news before you hear it from him. You'll be watching the news going. Hey, hon, what happened? Oh, yeah, I forgot to tell you the nuke blew up. I've been hot for three days. What's for dinner? You know, He's not going to tell you. Also, I can't I can't this verse. I, I it's hard for me to believe this is in the New Testament, but it is. You know, the Great Commission, of course you do. You're listening to the American family radio network. You know, the great commission. This is, this is uh, Matthew chapter 28. This is the climax of the gospel of Matthew. He's about to give his disciples, the great commission. He's standing there saying, go therefore make disciples of all nations. By the way, notice he doesn't say make believers. He says, make disciples. There's a difference, right? Anyway, he says, make disciples of all nations. And right there in verse 17, About his disciples who were there, it says, Some believed, but some doubted. What? He's standing right in front of them. The resurrected Jesus is standing in front of the disciples, and the text actually says, Some believed, but some doubted. Do you think they're making this up? This is not a flattering situation. If you're making this up, you'd say, Nobody ever doubted, we always believed. In fact, we knew before you were were killed, you'd be resurrected. Now, they don't say any of that. They're scared, scattered, skeptical, doubtful disciples. It's not a made-up story. There's embarrassing stories about Jesus in there. His own brothers don't believe in him. That's embarrassing. He's called a drunkard. He's called demon-possessed. He has his feet white with the hair of a prostitute, which he have been seen as a sexual advance in fact, there's even two prostitutes in his bloodline. The Jewish Messiah's bloodline has two prostitutes in it. Rahab and, Na- or Rahab and uh, Tamar. Do you think they made this up? Do you think Matthew and Luke got together and said, you know, when they were putting together the genealogies and said, you know what? I really think we need to spice up the Messiah's bloodline a little bit. Let's put a couple of prostitutes. No, they're just telling the truth. As embarrassing as it is. There's many more embarrassing details we have in the book. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. You can get those if you want. But this is just telling me this is not an invented story. There's also embedded confirmation. What's embedded confirmation? Embedded confirmation is, is what is sometimes called undesigned coincidences. Undesigned coincidences. We talked at length about this uh, uh, probably a couple of years ago. And we had Lydia McGrew on who did a book called Hidden in Plain View. You can go back and listen to that podcast, Hidden in Plain View. I talk about it a little bit in the book, Stealing from God. But if you just Google undesigned coincidences, you'll find them. What are undesigned coincidences? Let me just give you one example. There are many examples, but one gospel says that um, there was uh, a Jesus's mocking on Good Friday. They were hitting him and spitting on him and saying, tell me prophesy to us Christ who hit you. And you're going, really? Why would that be a prophecy? The guy's standing right in front of him. Then you go to another gospel, I think it's the gospel of Luke. And he, he describes the same situation, except it says, Luke says, they blindfolded him. Now, when you're reading the first gospel, you're going, I don't quite get it. Why it would be prophecy to say the guy who's standing in front of you, right in front of you, hit you. But now I understand when I read Luke's gospel because Jesus was blindfolded. In other words, both writers are independently witnessing the same historical event, but one is giving a little bit more detail that clears, clears up ambiguity in the other gospel. In other words, they couldn't have invented this. It's not like one guy left a little detail out so the other guy could fill it in. Hey, let's, you know, let's uh, conspire to do that. No, they're, this, this is what happens with eyewitness details. You have people giving some details and other people giving other details, but they all agree on the central fact. What's the central fact. Jesus was crucified. First, first of all, he was mocked and then he was, you know, whipped and crucified. They all agree on that. They just tell the story with different details. And when you compare the details, you go, ah, this one guy tells me a little bit more and it clears up the ambiguity I had with the other account. They couldn't do that. If this was contrived. And there's several of these. These I just gave you one in the interest of time. Another reason to believe in the resurrection is there's an empty tomb, an empty Jewish tomb, in fact. And the Jews could have stopped Christianity in its tracks if they could just take the body out of the tomb, Jesus's body out of the tomb, and parade it around the city. The Romans could have done the same thing. None of them could have. Did, none of them did that. Why? Because Jesus was still using his body. His body wasn't in the tomb. It was empty. Yet they could have stopped all the, all the trouble they were trying to stop by simply producing Jesus' body. In a known tomb. In a known place. And they couldn't do it. In fact, here's another piece of evidence. They're telling the truth. The Jews actually admitted the tomb was empty. That's why they came up with the story about the disciples came and stole the body. You say, well, how do you know that? Well, it's in the gospel of Matthew. Well, How do you know Matthew's telling the truth? Isn't that circular reasoning? No, it's not just Matthew who's saying this. There's Jewish writers at the time saying this, which is admitting the tomb is empty. And by the way, if Matthew, who is writing to the Jews, put a blatant lie in his text to say, here's the Jews explanation of the empty tomb and it wasn't really their explanation, he would have discredited his entire message. That must have been the Jews' explanation for the tomb being empty, that the disciples came and stole the body while the guards were asleep. But that very admission presupposes the tomb is empty. It's an admission that the tomb is empty. And by the way, when you have enemy testimony that helps your case, that's very powerful. Why? Well, look, if, if it's friendly testimony, it's the guy might lie, right? Look, Or is biased toward you. You know, your mother says you're brave. Everyone goes, okay, that's mom. We get it. But if your arch enemy says you're brave, guess what? You're brave. That's your enemy is affirmed something that helps your case. Here's a situation where the Jews are affirming something that helps the Christian case. The tomb was empty. Christianity could have been stopped, stopped if the tomb wasn't empty. And it wasn't. What other evidence do we have? Paul was converted. James was converted. In fact, Gary Habermas, who I mentioned earlier, has a minimal facts approach to the resurrection. He says virtually more than 90 percent of scholars that, that he has surveyed. And this is, these are scholars who are New Testament scholars trained in the field. They're anywhere from atheist to Christian. Yes, there are New Testament scholars that aren't Christians. They're are atheists, agnostics, you know, Bart Ehrman, others. Nine, more than 90 percent, based on the evidence, more than 90 percent of scholars will say, yes, Paul was converted. He was an opponent of Christianity, was converted. They will also say James, although it's lesser attested about James. He's not as central a figure as Paul, but they agree. James was converted. Really? The half brother of Jesus who didn't think who didn't think his own brother was God when he walked the earth. And then suddenly he's converted And 30 years later, dies as a martyr for his own brother in the city in which Jesus allegedly rose from the dead In Yeah. You know who tells us this? Josephus, the Jewish historian. That James was killed in 62 A.D. AD in Jerusalem by the Sanhedrin who threw him off the Temple Mount and then stoned him to death. It's not even a Christian source telling us this. It's it's Josephus, the Jewish historian. Why is James doing this? Because Jesus appeared to him. That's what the creed in 1 Corinthians 15 says. There's more evidence that Jesus rose from the dead, and we'll get into it after the break. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network, our website, crossexamine.org. And by the way, thanks for putting positive reviews up on the iTunes page for I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Keep it up back in two minutes. Ladies and gentlemen, I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist is a listener-supported radio program and podcast. If you like what we do, would you please consider going to crossexamined.org and giving us a tax-deductible donation? 100% of your donations will go to ministry, 0% to buildings. Thanks so much. What evidence do we have that Jesus of Nazareth The most influential human being to ever walk the earth actually rose from the dead. Been through some evidence here. Let me just mention some more evidence before I want to read to you something about the passion, which is very moving to me. In addition to James being converted, priests were converted. Look at Acts 6-7. Luke actually says that many priests were converted to the faith. Luke would have lost all credibility with the Pharisees, if he had suggested they had been converted and they weren't. Why is that in there? Because it really happened. There's five, 500 eyewitnesses cited in first Corinthians 15. Who are these eyewitnesses? Do we have anything from them? No, but that's not the point. The point is Paul would have lost all credibility with the church at Corinth. If he had said all these people had seen the risen Jesus and many of whom are still alive, if it didn't happen, the Jews proclaimed it and died for it. Why are Jews inventing a resurrected Jesus? They're not. These people were believers in Yahweh. They thought they were God's chosen people. Why are they inventing a resurrected Christ? They're not. They had every reason to say it wasn't true. Not every reason to say it did. There are also extra biblical writers, which I don't have time to get into. And there's even the growth of the church from Jerusalem. How do you explain that? If Jesus' tomb was occupied, Jews would never write about this unless it really happened. Remember the new Testament writers did not create the resurrection. The resurrection created the new Testament writers. There wouldn't even be a new Testament written by Jews in the first century. Unless Jesus rose from the dead. All right, friends, I hope I have enough time to do this, but every passion week resurrection week, I read an account of the crucifixion because it reminds me of what Jesus did for me and you. I'll try and get through as much as this as I can. It's in the book. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist, page 381. I want to warn you right now, young people, very young people. You got young people in here. This is going to be pretty brutal. It's on page 381, and it's an account of the crucifixion of Jesus. The whip the Roman soldiers use on Jesus has small iron balls and sharp pieces of sheep bones tied to it. Jesus is stripped of his clothing and his hands are tied to an upright post. His back buttocks and legs are whipped either by one soldier or by two who alternated positions. The soldiers taunt their victim as they repeatedly strike Jesus's back with the full force of the iron balls. They cause deep contusions and the sheep bones cut into the skin and the tissues. As the whipping continues, the lacerations tear into the underlying skeletal muscles and produce quivering ribbons of bleeding flesh. Pain and blood loss set the stage for circulatory shock. When it is determined by the centurion in charge that Jesus is near death, the beating is finally stopped. The half-fainting Jesus is then untied and allowed to slump to the stone pavement wet with his own blood. The Roman soldiers see a great joke in this provincial Jew claiming to be a king. They throw a robe across his soldiers and place a stick in his hand for a scepter. They still need a crown to make their travesty complete. A small bundle of flexible branches covered with long thorns are plated into the shape of a crown, and this is pressed into his scalp. scalp. Again, there is copious bleeding, the scalp being one of the most vascular areas of the body. After mocking him and striking him across the face, the soldiers take the stick from his hand and strike him across the head, driving the thorns deeper into his scalp. Finally, when they tire of their sadistic sport, the robe is torn from his back. The robe had already become adherent to the clots of blood and serum in the wounds and the removal, just as the careless removal of a surgical bandage causes excruciating pain, almost as though we were being whipped again. The wounds again begin to bleed in deference to Jewish customs. The Romans return his garments. The heavy horizontal beam of the cross is tied across his shoulders And the procession of the condemned Christ, two thieves and the execution party walk along the Via Della Rosa. In spite of his efforts to walk erect, the weight of the heavy wooden beam together with the shock produced by copious blood loss is too much. He stumbles and falls. The rough wood of the beam gouges into the lacerated skin and muscles of his shoulders. He tries to rise, but human muscles have been pushed beyond their endurance. The centurion, anxious to get on with the crucifixion, selects a stalwart North African onlooker, Simon of Cyrene, to carry the cross. Jesus follows, still bleeding and sweating, the cold, clammy sweat of shock. The 650-yard journey from the fortress Antonia to Golgotha is finally completed. Jesus is again stripped of his clothes except for the loincloth, which is allowed the Jews. The crucifixion begins. Jesus is offered wine mixed with myrrh, a mild pain-killing mixture. He refuses to drink. Simon is ordered to place the crossbeam on the ground, and Jesus is quickly thrown backward with the shoulders against the wood. The legionnaire feels for the depression at the front of the wrist. He drives a heavy, square, wrought iron nail through the wrist and deep into the wood. Quickly, he moves to the other side and repeats the action, being careful not to pull the arms too tight but to allow some flexibility and movement. The beam is then lifted and the title reading. Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews is nailed into place. The victim, Jesus is now crucified. As he slowly sags down with more weight on the nails in the wrists, excruciating, fiery pain shoots along the fingers and up the arms to explode in the brain. The nails in the wrists are putting pressure on the median nerves as he pushes himself toward upward, to avoid this stretching torment, he places the full weight on the nail through his feet. Again, there is the searing agony of the nail tearing through the nerves between the metatarsal bones of the feet. At this point, another phenomenon occurs. As the arms fatigue, great waves of cramps sweep over the muscles, nodding them in deep, relentless, throbbing pain. With these cramps comes the inability to push himself upward. Hanging by his arms, the pectoral muscles are paralyzed and the intercostal muscles are unable to act. Air can be drawn into the lungs, but it cannot be exhaled. Jesus fights to raise himself in order to get even one short breath. Finally, carbon monoxide builds up in the lungs and in the bloodstream, and the cramps partially subside. Spasmodically, he's able to push himself upward to exhale and to bring in life-giving oxygen. It is undoubtedly during these periods that he utters the seven short sentences that are recorded. Now begin hours of this limitless pain, cycles of cramping and twisting, partial asphyxiation, searing pain as tissue is torn from his lacerated back, as he moves up and down against the rough timber. Then another agony begins, a deep crushing pain in the chest. As the pericardium slowly fills with serum and begins to compress the heart, it is now almost over. The loss of tissue fluids has reached a critical level. The compressed heart is struggling to pump heavy, thick, sluggish blood into the tissues. The tortured lungs are making a frantic effort to gasp in small gulps of air. The markedly dehydrated tissues send their flood of stimuli to the brain. His mission of atonement has been completed. Finally, he can allow his body to die. With one last surge of strength, he once again presses his torn feet against the nail, straightens his legs, takes a deeper breath, and utters his seventh and last cry. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus went through all that ladies and gentlemen so that you and me could be reconciled to him so we could be saved from our sins by affirming father into your hands I commit my life that one solitary life is the most influential life in human history. How so? Because three days after this, on the third day, he walked out of that tomb after being tortured in that way, the risen Lord of life And that's why human being to ever walk the earth because he rose from the dead to prove he was also God. And he said I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. That was the ransom. The question is if you ever accepted the ransom because you and I have sinned. We've fallen short. We need to be punished for what we've done because God is infinitely just. And if there's any justice at all, God is the standard of justice. I haven't been just. You haven't been just. So why wouldn't you accept the fact that Jesus was just and took your punishment on himself? So you could be forgiven for what you've done and you could be given his righteousness. Why wouldn't you accept that? This is the greatest news ever spoken of. This is the greatest news ever. It's the good news. Why wouldn't you accept it? Why wouldn't you repent of what you've done and accept it? Look, you don't achieve your salvation in Christianity. You receive your salvation. You don't achieve your identity in Christianity. You receive your identity. Because there was an eyewitness there by the name of John who said that God has given you the right to become his child by believing in what Jesus has done. Have you ever done that? Have you ever repented of your sins and believed? trusted in Jesus, why wouldn't you? That's the message of this weekend, ladies and gentlemen. God bless you. If you obviously can't go to church, celebrate with your family the greatest story and truth ever told. See you next week.
0: If you benefit from this podcast, help others find it. Just go to iTunes or any other podcast service you might be using to listen and leave us a five-star rating on the I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist podcast with Dr. Frank Turek. It will take you less than five seconds. You can also help a lot by leaving us a positive review for others to see. This podcast is available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many other audio content delivery apps. Thank you and God bless.